Well, we've arrived at chapter 20 of Revelation, and it's probably fair to say that it's the most hotly contested, uh, vigorously debated passage in the book. Uh, there are differing views on the meaning of the image that we're provided with in Revelation 20 of the millennium, just means thousand years, uh, and at times people's feelings about their perspectives of this image uh, are held very vehemently and argued with uh, great force. Um, if you could separate the text from the bluster that often accompanies the uh, debates and arguments about it, I think you'll find that it fits quite nicely into the book of Revelation um, and is entirely consistent with the messages and exhortations that we've seen throughout. In other words, I don't think that Revelation 20 is giving us, uh, at least in the first 10 or so verses, is, is giving us any particularly new period of time or history uh, or, or predicting for us a, a different time. So I don't hold the view that for the past 150 years or so has been the most uh, common one concerning the millennium and how we ought to understand this text. Um, now, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of theological argument. This is not a, uh, a classroom lecture. This is not a theological treatise. Um, the purpose of a sermon uh, is to help you see and apply the truths that are in this passage uh, and to help equip you for faith in Jesus and life in a fallen world. So I'm not going to approach this like a theology lecture. However, I will make perhaps more comments than I typically do along the way concerning theological perspectives on this topic because of its sort of stature uh, and significance in eschatology, in, in sort of Christian uh, doctrine of the, the end times uh, as, a, as a whole. So in the chapter, in chapter 20 of Revelation, there are three scenes, if you will. We find the millennium in verses 1 through 6. Then there's the battle in verses 7 to 10. And then there's the judgment in verses 11 through 15. The millennium, I believe, as I'll unfold today, is another image for this present age. Uh, the battle is, I believe, another portrayal of Christ's final judgment upon the wicked, which we've seen several times already. And then the judgment, that's what's fundamentally new in chapter 20. That's a scene that we haven't seen depicted yet. That is a future uh, uh, judgment of all individual human beings where there's a resurrection and all people stand before the throne of God and are sent to their eternal destination. That is what's depicted in, the, the, in verses 11 through 15 of this chapter. We're only going to cover the first two scenes of this chapter today, uh, which is going to be verses 1 through 10. And then next week we'll look at uh, the judgment uh, before God's throne uh, and where that leads. So I'm going to read for you the first six verses. And then we'll talk about this scene of uh, the millennium. So this is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So these six verses present to us the, this thousand-year period of Christ's reign with his saints that is called the millennium, which simply means thousand years. All right, that's why it's called the millennium. Um, if, if you are going to craft your sort of doctrine of the last days and your entire theological or eschatological perspective around the concept of a future earthly millennial kingdom, these are the only six verses you have in all the Bible to do it from. The millennium is not mentioned anywhere else in Old Testament or New. It's one image in these six verses. And so if, uh, if you think that the, the timing of the return of Christ and all the various events that seem to maybe be surrounding it uh, have to fit around a literal earthly thousand-year reign then you've got to make all of your other uh, passages of scripture that relate to the return of Christ and the kingdom he establishes, you've got to make all of that fit around these six verses because it's just right here. That's not to belittle these verses or to demean these verses. It's just a reality that this is the only place where this millennial kingdom is spoken of in Old Testament or New. I believe that in verses 1 through 6, we have another image of the same period of time that we've seen repeatedly depicted in Revelation, namely the present age. Uh, John's visions since chapter 4 uh, have spanned the entire age between Christ's ascension and his return uh, and then sort of rewound itself to, to start again and viewed the same history from a different angle. That's what we've seen kind of over and over in the book of Revelation. And so chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, do the same thing one more time rewinding, showing the current age prior to Christ's return, and they give us one last image to present some other additional truths about the age in which we live. That's what I think is going on in uh, these verses. So let me make a few observations for you about this period, this millennium uh, period. Number one, the millennium is not a literal 1,000 years. Revelation is packed with numbers that function symbolically. We've seen the number seven appear in numerous places. There's seven letters to seven churches. The, the Holy Spirit is depicted as the seven spirits of God. Uh, we've seen that the number 666 is the mark of the beast because it's the number of man. So numbers throughout the book of Revelation in this, this prophetic apocalyptic genre don't generally mean what they are. They convey something. They convey a, a, a truth. Uh, symbolically. And it would be very strange, it would be very surprising if God intended John to understand the number 1,000 in this image as a literal amount of time. Uh, that, there, that there would be this period where Christ and his saints would reign for literally 1,000 years. It would be very unusual and out of character with the rest of the book for this to be a literal period of time. 
most, though not all, premillennialists, that is, people who, those who hold the view that uh, Christ will return to earth before this period of the millennium. In other words, he's going to return, set up this earthly kingdom, and then judge Satan after that earthly kingdom, and then sort of kind of return again uh, and, and judge people and, and set up uh, the eternal state of things. Uh, most, though not all, premillennialists, uh, believe that the millennium will last precisely 1,000 years. It's, a, it's, a depict, it's seen usually as a literal period of time. More likely, it conveys at least a really long time. 1,000 years could just mean a long period of time. Uh, but probably it means something more like the full amount of time. That is exactly how long God has ordained for the age to last. And we don't know how long that is which I think is also consistent with the mind and communication of God and what we see in Revelation. He doesn't usually give us all the details we would like to have. So I think to say that this millennial kingdom is for a thousand years is to say there is a, a completeness, there is a, a preordained time for this age to last, and it will last no less and no more than that ordained amount of time. And so I think when it says the millennium is for a thousand years, that's what it means. It's exactly as long as God plans for it to be. We don't know how long that is. Number two, uh, Christ's millennial reign is in heaven, not on earth. His reign in the millennium is in heaven, not on earth. Every throne we've seen throughout the book of Revelation is in heaven. God's throne, the thrones of the 24 elders, Etc. When we've seen thrones mentioned, they've always been in heaven, except for a couple of occasions where that reference Satan's throne or the throne of the beast, which has to do with the authority of, of Satan and, uh, and his demons. Um, so the thrones that appear in Revelation are always in a, a heavenly throne room. And the text in Revelation 20 gives us no special indication of the location of Christ's reign. So it does not say, for example, that they will reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. It doesn't say that. It says they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And it says he saw thrones and those seated on the thrones and they were, right, they were reigning with Christ. So there's, there's no reason to assume that suddenly the vision that John sees depicts thrones that are on earth. It, just, it would be out of step with the rest of the book. Um, so it makes the most sense to regard the thrones of those who have been given authority to judge as being situated in heaven and thus depicting an invisible spiritual reign, which would be consistent with seeing the millennium as this age. Christ and his saints in heaven are, are reigning, presiding over the affairs of the world in an invisible way. We don't yet see him, right? Uh, Premillennialism, again, the view that sees the millennium as a future literal earthly kingdom, uh, requires, I mean, it insists on the, the, the millennial kingdom uh, being a physical earthly government where Christ has returned to the earth and set up his throne. So, so premillennialists of every stripe, and there's varieties of premillennialists even, but premillennialism uh, uh, insists on this millennium, this millennial reign being an earthly kingdom, an earthly physical reign. Uh, and furthermore, to go a step further, uh, many premillennialists, especially what's called dispensationalism. Has anybody heard the term dispensationalism? So dispensational premillennialists regard the millennium as a very Jewish 
focused kingdom. Uh, Christ's throne is usually depicted as being in Jerusalem. Uh, the boundaries of the kingdom, or at least the sort of capital of the kingdom, because they'll regard it as a global, uh, a global reign of Christ, but it's, it's established in the land of Palestine. There's the promised land uh, of, uh, the, of the Jews under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And as such, it is seen as a period of time when God specially spotlights and blesses the nation of Israel, restoring her to her land from the days of Joshua and King David and sort of, you know, elevating her again as the covenant people of God. A few problems with that view. Number one, the text makes no mention of Jerusalem or Israel or the Jewish people whatsoever. It's just not there. It's very strange to think that this period of time would be particularly focused on the Jews when the only text about the millennium doesn't mention the Jews. It just is, it seems strange. And also, I think it would be out of step with the rest of New Testament teaching, and indeed the teaching of the book of Revelation, to think that when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, he's going to reestablish the distinction between Jew and Gentile, that he spent so much effort abolishing in the gospel. We have so many teachings consistently throughout the New Testament that when Christ came and took sin upon himself and went to the cross and rose again, that he destroyed what kept Jews and Gentiles apart. He's created one man out of the two, Ephesians chapter 2 says that. So it would be very strange that when Christ returns to the earth, he reestablishes that distinction. He goes, okay, I've got Israel over here, and Gentiles over here. It's out of step with New Testament teaching. And indeed, the book of Revelation has depicted, it's used images of the Jewish people, like the 12 tribes in chapter 7, to depict the fullness of the people of God. Uh, so it would be very unusual and inconsistent to see the millennium as a Jewish-focused kingdom. And since there's no earthly location specified at all, it's most natural and faithful to the text to regard the thrones of millennium, the thrones of the millennium as representing a kingdom that is still, at this point, spiritual and invisible. Again, which is consistent with the idea that the millennium of Revelation 20 is this age in which we live. So Christ's millennial reign is in heaven, not on earth. Number three, during the millennium, Satan is unable to stop the work of the gospel. He's unable to stop the work of the gospel. Now, we're told in some vivid terms that Satan is bound for this thousand-year period. The chapter starts with an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit. Some translations call that the abyss. Uh, and he seizes Satan and throws him into this pit and locks and seals it and shuts it uh, so, that, so that he's trapped in this pit for the thousand-year period. Uh, and here we're told specifically in verse 3, late part of verse 3, the reason that he's shut into the pit, the effect of him being shut into the pit is that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are, are ended. So the purpose of the binding of Satan, the effect of the binding of Satan is that he is not deceiving the nations. So premillennialists here see the binding of Satan as a total and complete. Satan cannot do anything. He has no power. He's not, he not doing anything on the earth because he's completely trapped in this pit, which reinforces the notion of this future period of peace where Christ reigns and there's no opponent. 
And that's a, there, there is some, some strength to that particular argument. I think that it's, that it's better to see the binding of Satan here in a kind of limited sense. He's not bound in the sense that he's entirely unable to do anything or to do any harm, but in the sense that his activity is restrained and limited by God's sovereign power. And again, we're told specifically that his, uh, his binding keeps him from deceiving the nations. And I think a good way to understand this limitation is to observe the success of the gospel throughout this age. As the news about Jesus has traveled around the globe and the church has been established in hundreds of nations of the earth, if you read the book of Acts, you see the gospel going out and breaking ethnic and national boundaries. And then you follow church history down into our own day and you see the gospel is just breaking into new places and new peoples and new territories. And there is now no sort of national or geographical or ethnic barrier to the power of the gospel. Wherever the gospel goes, people are saved. Where the gospel is proclaimed, there are people who are repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ because Satan is not able in this age to deceive the nations in that broad sense. He's not able to keep the gospel from going forward. Now, I want you to see, uh, I want you to take a look for a moment at Revelation chapter 9. If you were to, to flip back a, a few chapters, I think that the binding of Satan in this age, uh, in, in chapter 20, very closely parallels the limitations that we see God place on Satan in Revelation chapter 9. So when the seven trumpets uh, are, are being sounded, uh, the, in chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then he said later in that chapter, to be, that angel of the pit, is said to be uh, Satan. Uh, Abaddon and Apollyon and the destroyer, we get different names for him, but it's clearly Satan. And he's the one who, in this, in chapter 9, is the angel of the bottomless pit. And so we see him falling from heaven, right? A star fell from heaven, and he goes into the pit. And he has given the key to the pit. So there's an implication there that he doesn't have the authority on his own to have access to or the key to the pit. He's given the key, presumably by the sovereignty of God. He's given uh, the key to, to the shaft of the pit. Uh, his activity, if you look through chapter 9, is restrained and limited. So it's, it's shown, Satan is shown as causing harm and and, and oppressing people of all kinds, including the people of God, but his activity is seen as being limited. So we've already seen that he's given the key in verse 4 of chapter 9. Uh, so you've got these, these demons, these locust-like demons coming out of the pit, uh, and they're given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And verse 4 says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree. Who tells them? not to harm the earth. It's God. It's God in his sovereignty limiting the power of demonic forces in this age. And then in verse 5, it says they were allowed to torment them, that is, to, to torment people on the earth for five months, but not to kill them. Well, who sets that boundary on the work of Satan and his demons? It's God. I saw the same thing in the book of Job, in the very beginning of Job, when Satan is walking around in heaven and that God has this conversation with him. And he says, consider my servant Job, right? And so Satan says, well, if I take everything from him, he's not going to praise you anymore. And what does God say? He gives him some boundaries. He says, all right, 
Put your hand to him, but see that you do not harm him or take his life. Well, why would Satan obey that? He's not like a noble character. Okay, I'll follow the rules. He obeys that because he can't disobey it. He doesn't have the authority to do anything that God doesn't give him the authority to do. And so he's active. He's at work in the world. He's sending his demonic forces out into the world to try to deceive people and to harm people and to lead them astray and even at times to kill them. But their forces are limited by the sovereignty of God. And so I think that uh, it's consistent with that image from Revelation 9 and our general consideration of what's going on in this age as Christ reigns in heaven and the church is growing and proclaiming and spreading the gospel and Satan is trying his best to, to keep people away from God, but he's not winning. I think it, makes, it, it fits perfectly with this image of the millennium in Revelation 20. So Satan is bound, but not in the sense that he can do nothing, but only in the sense that he is no longer successful at keeping the gospel from getting to the nations. And that's been a focus of the book of Revelation as well. The multitude in chapter 7 of every tribe, every tongue, every nation uh, of, of the earth. Because Satan can't keep it from happening. So a way to think and apply this reality is simply this. Don't lose heart in proclaiming the gospel. There is, uh, there is always hope that whatever sinner we are con- communicating with whatever person we are telling the gospel to may repent and believe satan is at work he's definitely active in the world but he's not able to keep the power of the gospel from saving those who believe romans 1 16 says the gospel is the power of god to salvation for everyone who believes jew and gentile right so let us be faithful and courageous in our proclamation of christ and trust He will gather his sheep. He's not going to lose. The gospel will be successful because while Satan is at work, he is bound. He is not able to stop the work of the gospel. And a fourth uh, and final observation about this millennial age, number four, uh, the dead in Christ are reigning with him in heaven. The dead in Christ are reigning with him in heaven. So those who are sitting on the thrones in verse 4, I saw thrones and seated on him were, and we get two groups uh, of people. So those sitting on thrones uh, comprise two groups. Number one, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. So these are martyrs. These are people who have died in their defense of Christ and his gospel. And certainly during the age that John was writing this revelation, that was that was uh, relevant and becoming more relevant. There's even one martyr named in one of the letters early in Revelation, Antipas, right, who had given his life for the testimony of Christ. And it would come to be increasingly true over the ages. It's even true now in some places where to, to, be, to name Jesus as Lord is to put your very life at risk. So the group one of people sitting on these thrones are martyred Christians. And verse two is those who had not worshipped the beast or received its image on their heads or their hands. And again, I think that just means every Christian who had been faithful, whether he died as a martyr, like as he died particularly because of their proclamation of Christ, or died in some other way, more naturally, um, they were faithful in their, uh, in their walk with Jesus Christ and their proclamation of him. And so they died in Christ. And so the thrones of chapter 20, verse 4, 
are seating those who belong to Christ and who have died either as martyrs or who died in faith. So I think this means all this means martyred saints and all deceased Christians are on thrones in heaven reigning with Christ. I think that's what that's telling us. It says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And I think that speaks not of a physical resurrection, but of a spiritual one. Which is not to say that there won't be a physical resurrection. There will be. That's what's, at least implicitly, the, the second uh, resurrection. If this spiritual one is called the first resurrection, then there is a second resurrection where all people will be physically raised and then stand before the throne of God for judgment. And that's what we read about in verses 11 through 15. But we won't get there until next week. Uh, so this is a spiritual resurrection. Namely, it, it, it's the, the transporting, if you will, of a soul of a deceased believer into the heavenly realm in Jesus' presence. Right, we know that the Apostle Paul says that to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We remember that Jesus said to the thief who was dying next to him on the cross, who had asked him, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So there is a spiritual life, a spiritual reality where the, the souls of those who have died in Christ are transported to be with him in this heavenly unseen realm. That's not the realm they'll exist in forever because when Christ comes and there is the resurrection and, there, and people are consigned to either uh, eternal punishment or eternal uh, reward, um, the, the final state of things is a physical, material, embodied existence. So this spiritual, sort of immaterial uh, existence is only for this period of time. And I think the millennium is depicting that period of time. I think the, the thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints is this spiritual, invisible realm where the souls of departed Christians are currently, even now, with Christ and somehow sharing in his reign, assisting him in presiding over the world. We don't have a lot of details about what that means or what that looks like. I don't know exactly what authority Jesus delegates to the saints and say, hey, why don't you take care of that? I don't know. We don't have lots of, uh, of, of, of details about how it goes, but we do know that there is a seat of honor for all of Christ's people who have died in faith, who are now in this age with Christ in heaven, reigning, sharing in his reign. So what we have here is a glimpse of the current activity of departed saints, and they're ruling over the world with Jesus. Which is why he says in the very next verse, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Right? This is the first resurrection. It's when a Christian dies in this age and their soul is transported to be with Christ. That's the first resurrection. And the vision here proclaims the blessedness of those who share in the first resurrection. What comfort this gives us, friends, for those who have died, for loved ones we know who were in Christ when they died. They have experienced this first resurrection. They are now currently reigning with Christ, seated with him and ruling 
over the world. It says, over such, that is, over those who experience this first resurrection, the second death has no power. And the second death, we're told later, is the lake of fire and sulfur into which the wicked are cast. But I'm getting ahead of myself. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Friends, if you have departed loved ones, friends or family members who were believing in Jesus when they died, take comfort at these precious words of blessing. During this present age, as Christ reigns over the world from heaven, there is your loved one sitting with him on a throne designated just for him or her, assisting Christ in his rule. Praise God for this grace. And this is the fifth of seven blessing statements. Blessed is the one or blessed are those. This is the fifth one. There's two more yet to come. So the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ with his saints depicted in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 is not a future sort of intermediate or interim kingdom on earth that we should expect Christ to come back and establish. Rather, it is a symbolic image given to us to depict the age in which we live, the the church age, as some call it, during which Christ and his saints who have died in faith are reigning over the world, carrying out God's purposes while Satan's work is restricted and limited. So there's a lot more that could be said about the millennium, and if you have questions or arguments to make, I would love to have a conversation uh, later. Um, But that's what I believe is going on in verses 1 through 6. So if that's what the millennium is, this is the millennium. Congratulations, friends. You're in the millennium. You're living in in the millennial reign of Christ. What happens at the end of this age? What comes next? And that's what verses 7 through 10 depict for us. Let's look at those together. Verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at the end of the millennium, this age, Satan will be released from his prison. That is, the the binding that currently is on him to keep him from deceiving the nations uh, will be removed, and he will come out and deceive the nations, which is the very thing that he has been prohibited from doing in this present age during the millennium. And what's he going to do? He's going to gather them for battle. Oh boy, we've seen this before, haven't we? How do you think his battle is going to go for Satan and the army that he assembles? Gog and Magog are somewhat enigmatic names. Uh, It's a reference to Ezekiel 38, uh, where Israel's pagan oppressors are dubbed with these names. And then God foretells through Ezekiel uh, of a fiery judgment that will come upon them. So it's clearly a a, a reference to that image from Ezekiel 38. But no one's exactly sure uh, what or who precisely they are. So Gog and Magog, we can't necessarily identify them with a particular city or country or or whatever. 
but whatever they are, at any rate, the prophetic reference from Ezekiel supplies the name of Satan's gathered armies. And it says their number is like the sand of the sea. And they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So it's a big army. Satan at this point, at the end of the age, has been successful in deceiving many into joining his ranks and fighting against the church. Uh, and so the camp of the saints and the beloved city, I think, just represents the, 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 the gathered people of God, the identity of the church as Christ's people. And so what we have here is a description of the very same rebellion that we've read about several times before in Revelation. Back in chapter 16, it was the first place we saw it, verses 12 through 16, we saw the, what, what's actually dubbed there the Battle of Armageddon. If you hear Armageddon, that's what it's referring to. It's this end-of-the-age gathering of kings and armies uh, under the power of Satan to oppose and oppress the church. We saw it again in chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, where the horns of the scarlet beast were, were sort of defined uh, so the, the, Babylon, uh, the harlot Babylon was riding on this, this beast, and the beast had these ten horns, and the, the, the vision unfolded to kind of describing what those horns represented. Uh, and, and basically they represented future kings who would gather to make war on the Lamb. And then we saw it again very recently at the end of chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. In that place it's called the Great Supper of God in a stark contrast with the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is when Christ rode in on a white horse and conquered his enemies and sl slew everybody with the word of his mouth and the birds of the air feasted on the mountain of flesh, uh, of rotting flesh from all of the enemies that Christ destroyed. And when he destroyed all of his enemies, he cast the beast and the false prophet, Satan's agents in the world, into the lake of fire. So, I wonder if the outcome is going to be any different for Satan and his armies here in chapter 20. Let's see if the battle goes for them uh, any better. Verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Ouch. Verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. It's about time, wouldn't you say? By this time in Revelation, we are so excited to see the devil get his due, right? He receives the punishment, the penalty that he has been storing up for himself in, a, in rebelling against God and oppressing his church for ages and ages. And he is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Now that just means that Satan is cast into the same place as his demonic agents, the beast and the false prophet. Not necessarily, as premillennialists think, that the, the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire first, and then after this intervening thousand years, then Satan will join them there. I don't think that's what's going on. It simply means that the lake of fire, where Satan is thrown, is the same one that was spoken of in the previous vision. So when he says where the beast and the false prophet were, he means where we saw them go at the end of the last vision, at the end of chapter 19. And check this out. And they, that is Satan, beast, false prophet, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Please notice, Satan will not be presiding in hell. 
He will be a resident. You might be used to thinking of the devil as sort of happily overseeing the torment of souls in hell. But what we're plainly told here is that Satan is not dispensing his wrath upon others in hell. He is receiving in himself the wrath of God against him for all eternity. His rebellion against God is punished. His oppression of God's people through the ages receives full justice. The good guy wins. The bad guy loses. The bride is rescued and gathered to her groom. That is what's going on in Revelation 20. Brothers and sisters, what confidence we should have in this broken world. The complexities of life, the deceitfulness of sin, the hardships and and pain that mar our relationships, the confusion and debauchery that abound in our communities and our culture. These things are real, but they are not ultimate. No matter how difficult or painful these circumstances may be, the assured victory of our Lord Jesus over the devil and every wicked thing ought to infuse us with strength and hope to press on. The triumph of his gospel and the future consummation of his kingdom should compel us to endure in faith, guarding our testimony to the Lord Jesus in all we do and to eagerly await the day of his return when he destroys his enemies and sets every wrong thing right. That's the message of the millennium and of the battle that comes at the end of it. This hope and confidence belong to all those who are trusting in Christ. But if you've not repented of your sin and named Jesus as Lord, God's word says you remain under his wrath. You stand condemned already. And in that state, you have reason not for confidence, but for dread. Hear the merciful call of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, call upon the name of Jesus. Trust in him. The promise of Christ to every soul who clings to him is given to us back in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Friends, let's keep our eyes on our king, and let's endure this age in faith, knowing that Christ will set every wrong thing right, the wicked will be judged, the devil will be destroyed, and we will be with him for eternity. Let's pray.